I'm Tony Smith and this is the Tree Podcast, conversations about communicating climate action. The topic this time, how to talk about climate adaptation and resilience. With 2015 set to be the hottest year on record, how we deal with the growing impacts of climate change and specifically how to help the world's most vulnerable nations tackle these impacts is expected to be a hot topic for discussion as governments meet in Paris to agree a new global climate agreement. Having already experienced a slew of extreme weather events across the globe this year, from extreme flooding to hurricanes to intense drought, Frank Nutter, president of the Reassurance Association of America, explains how no part of the world is free from climate risks. The industry does see climate primarily through the prism of extreme natural events. Munich Re, for instance, reports a rising number of natural catastrophes globally. You'll bear with me on a couple of numbers here. The average number of natural catastrophes in the 1980s was about 400 events per year. In recent years, the average has been 1,000 such events, and the overwhelming majority of those have been climate and weather-related, so meteorological events, storms, uh, hydrological events, floods, mass movement kinds of things, and climate events, including uh, droughts and forest fires and extreme temperatures. It's been indisputable, I think, uh, everyone recognizes that part Part of the problem is the rise in damages, whether it's insured or economic and uninsured, is heavily influenced by the concentration of people. Uh, and property in geographically vulnerable areas. And in the United States, it's a particular problem because such a high percentage of our coastline is developed. Here you have not only a um, significant population living in coastal areas subject to storm surge and hurricanes and other uh, kinds of climate and weather-related events, but the population is expected to increase pretty dramatically. We have over $10 trillion of insured coastal property in the United States, so the industry has a big interest in seeing that people are either protected through adaptation or, or better understand that the risk that they have. Ten of the 12 most costly hurricane events in the United States have occurred in the last nine years. A pretty remarkable statistic when you think about the impact of this combination of changes in climate and weather and more people in these coastal areas. Thunderstorms have increased here in the U.S. Tornado losses have increased here in the United States. The severe wind is clearly a peril that is of great concern to the industry. And now drought. Drought has become the third most costly category of natural catastrophe, primarily because of crop losses. And now we see, particularly in California, wildfire events that are destroying people's homes, and again, primarily because of drought. So what's the insurance industry doing to tackle this risk? What the industry tend, the insurance industry tends to do is focus on adaptation or mitigation measures. So that would include improved building codes, uh, to getting the Congress to adopt better land use management practices, uh, to encourage the states to adopt land use and building codes that, uh, that would protect people from this risk, and to uh, relocate properties uh, where possible to take them particularly out of floodplains where development has occurred. So the measures that have been taken by the industry have largely been focused on adaptation mitigation that can be done by states or communities to, to try and improve that. Uh, the, the best example of that is probably after Superstorm Sandy in 2012 that in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, it's been a lot of attention paid to rising sea levels and the potential storm surge in the rebuilding process. So with the risk of climate change rising, how are people engaging with the issue of climate adaptation and how do we better go about communicating this to communities who may find themselves impacted by extreme weather and climate events? 
Adam Corner, Research Director at Climate Outreach, explains why early engagement with communities is key. If we want to build that really robust sort of level of public engagement with climate change, then those conversations with people, they need to be happening before a disaster hits rather than during it or after. I mean, there's different reasons for why that could be a bad idea, you know, during an extreme weather event. People, potentially, the last thing they want to do is think about those kinds of things happening again. There can be really strong emotional reactions against that. You no know, one wants to be told, I told you so. You know, no one wants to be lectured while something like that's taking place. And it can feel almost opportunistic. And I think maybe slightly different, but it felt to me very much like, well, there is a legitimate and very real and serious conversation to be had about climate impacts, migration, the movement of people. It isn't typically a part of the discourse very much or, or outside of certain circles. So it, with the recent Syrian refugee crisis, when some people have started talking about that issue, it's maybe others can think, well, this feels a bit opportunistic because that platform hasn't been built there beforehand. Something that Climate Outreach has done quite a bit of work on is to think about this idea of the strange amount of social silence that surrounds climate change. People just don't talk about it all that much. And I think there's various sort of negative implications of that. But one of the negative consequences would be if most people are not used to or familiar with even the vague idea of sort of climate change and, and what impacts that might mean um, for their neighbourhood or their country because those conversations don't really happen, then when they do happen, it seems a little bit opportunistic and a little bit in bad taste almost to be starting to talk about some of those issues. So early engagement is important to help us build a platform to talk about adaptation. But what are the messages we should be giving people about climate impacts to get the most effective engagement? Communicators should focus on sort of preparedness rather than this idea of getting back to normal because in a changing climate, all sorts of things are not going to get back to normal. You know, the risks really are changing. So this idea that we can return to some state which we were previously at is probably not realistic and it's probably not the best way to think about it. Whereas actually if people can start thinking about being prepared building resilience and taking the actions that they can as well as supporting things at a more national global level that would shore up the responses that they're taking individually then that's a, not only a kind of more positive way to, to think about it than rather than getting back to some previous state but it's, it also seems as if those kinds of ideas of being prepared and responsible and ready for the future like they're ideas that appeal quite well across the political spectrum. Sven Harmling agrees that building preparedness is vital for his work as advocacy coordinator at Care International, Sven's worked with communities across the world to help build better climate resilience, and he emphasises that getting this buy-in at the local level is important to seeing results. I think there are a number of lessons and practical experience we have which cut across both, for example, preparing to floods and extreme events which have a very direct impact, but also how to help, for example, farmers prepare for recurring droughts or, or let's say slow onset de deterioration of their environments. And I think among the, the positive like, is what we've seen is not what we're also trying to promote in various programs is that it's really important to work with the local communities and we work with them and identifying what does climate change mean. Uh, often people don't talk about climate change but they're really experiencing in their daily work over the last years in terms of, for example, planning for harvests and for seeds, etc., uh, that the climate is changing. Um, and so they're really experiencing the, the impact in their daily life and their daily situation. So working with them and starting to understand what are the changes that, that are expected, um, that you're already seeing, what are the risks you see in your specific communities, and also what are some of the priorities 
is a very important element. I myself, I've been, for example, last year, I've been uh, visiting some projects in Peru in the context of glacial melting and also situations around droughts, etc. And people really sat down as a community and made their own maps of their community and, and discussed what does, for example, melting of glacial water mean for our longer-term situation, but also for the annual variations between higher water and lower water. What does this mean for our crop, for our food security? What are also options, for example, for economic diversification? And one of the experiences we have is that really this process of doing this together within a community is, is crucial um, because it builds joint awareness, it builds joint confidence, and very often the communities are better prepared after these situations because they, they have improved their own organization and their own understanding of some of these aspects. And this is not exclusive to small communities in developing countries, but it's a tactic that should be used across the world. Conversations between neighbours and friends can be hugely effective when it comes to talking about climate resilience. As Sven and Adam explained. Thinking and, and talking to your neighbours and community members in, in whatever setup you're dealing with about what you're already seeing in terms of changes and feeling and, and what you think might might change in the future and, and what to do about it is often a starting point for on the one hand building communities and building community engagement um, but also for increasing other people's awareness. I'm living in, in Bonn, Germany and of course many people are educated but even starting to talk with neighbors about what they're seeing uh, in terms of changes, what they're realizing also makes it easier for example to talk about okay what are, what are the things that need to be done, what is it we can do ourselves here in the community, what is it we need to ask our local government to do. So sometimes it just requires someone to kick off this, this discussion but I think that often can lead to, to concrete solutions. We're working with a particular community group in a tiny little town in the southwest of England and they've formed a kind of community flood resilience group and there hasn't, there hasn't really been any major flooding really directly in their area and the way that we set the group up wasn't to say okay guys we're you know we need to figure out how to respond to all these terrible risks of climate change it was to say you know are you interested in flood risks in your local area so it started from something quite every day and gradually the idea of climate change has been introduced into that group and it's been introduced I think in a way that is on people's own terms and they've and it started from a position that they feel comfortable with and because of that that resentment hasn't been there at all there were people at the beginning who did express some degree of kind of skepticism but because there was no antagonistic attempt to say no 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 you're wrong you need to believe this and we just let people develop at their own pace that kind of conversational approach I think cascades into a whole range of different actions. I mean, one of the recent things that happened was they held a bit of a public event in a bookstore and there were people from that group who were quite happy to then talk to other people from the community about what they were doing. The posters had climate change on them. They talked about flood risks. But I guess it didn't start from a very explicit kind of here's the risks and the threat and the danger of climate change. But it was always anticipated that we would bring that into the conversation. So we certainly weren't ignoring it. But it didn't quite have that maybe that knee-jerk reaction, which I'm very familiar with. While building resilience at a local level is crucial, not all solutions can happen within communities, and building a strong framework for adaptation at the global level will be a vital topic of conversation for governments in Paris. As communicators attempting to translate this back home, what are the key things we should be looking out for in the negotiations? The, the Paris Agreement should have triggering on the one hand that there's increased attention to adaptation, and you hear a lot from developing countries that they think the Paris Agreement must put mitigation and adaptation on equal footing. And I think there's some good progress in terms of building this momentum. Um, 
I think almost all of the INDCs which came in from the developing countries include an adaptation component. There's also a discussion about agreeing some form of global goal on adaptation, which could serve as a kind of overarching direction on where we need to go in terms of cooperating on adaptation, building resilience, and reducing vulnerability. We also think it's very important to see that the Paris Agreement very likely will include some say joint agreement on, on main principles of good adaptation, including participatory aspects, gender sensitive, etc. And then there's another element which is about a big discussion on whether all countries should regularly put their future adaptation plans on the table, so to also create this ongoing momentum and cycle uh, of action. I think there's a lot of convergence in terms of, yes, we need to uh, increasingly work on adaptation, we need to cooperate partially through financial support, of course, but also as joint knowledge sharing and learning, as I think also many developed countries and richer countries are still in their first steps in terms of really understanding adaptation. And on that note, we'll end this tree podcast. A special thanks to Frank Nutter from the Reassurance Association of America, Adam Corner from Climate Outreach, and Sven Harmling from Care International. The Tree Podcast is a product of the Global Call for Climate Action. You can find more resources on our website at treealerts.org.